0: Welcome to Life, Death, Law. I'm Liza Hanks. Please join me in this podcast as we explore estate planning. Birth, old age, sickness, and death are part of every human life, yet most of us avoid talking about it or planning for it. Death is like sex, really. We all do it, most of us are embarrassed to talk about it, and most of us have questions we're afraid to ask. Fear no more. I'm here to answer your questions without judgment. Life, Death, Law brings you real life stories, interviews with experts, and practical tips to answer your questions about all of it, from birth to death, and everything in between. Are you ready? Let's get started. In today's episode of Life, Death, Law, I am honored to be talking with Dr. Muffy Wiebe Waterman, the author of a new book, Wired to Listen, that explores why what we say and don't say to kids matters. In Wired to Listen, Dr. Waterman, but I'll call her Muffy because we raised our kids together, draws together current and classic research, classroom practices, and family stories to offer all of us a view into how kids learn from what we say to them and what we don't. And she knows, as I'm sure you do too, that what we say to kids shapes the way that they perceive the world and how they choose to act in it. I asked her to be on the show today because, in Wired to Listen, one of the topics that Muffy writes about is talking to kids about the hard stuff, sex, death, and divorce. So many of the people that I work with, and I'm sure many of the people listening to this show, struggle with talking appropriately and effectively to kids of all ages about death and dying. These conversations can be around the death of a beloved grandparent, or about the process of estate planning, or even between adult children and elderly parents about the reality of -of end-of-life planning. If you have ever struggled with how to talk honestly and openly about death and dying with your kids or your parents, and honestly, who hasn't, I think you'll enjoy listening
1: to today's show.
0: So Muffy, I'm so glad that you were willing to be on my show today. Thanks for coming.
1: I am so excited to talk about, well, maybe not death and dying, but talking to kids about things like that. Right. Well, I
0: asked you to be on the show today because you've written a really good book about how to talk to kids and your chapter talking about the hard stuff, I think is perfect for the listeners of the show, because for sure, talking about death and dying, and even just making an estate plan can be really difficult for parents. And they ask me all the time, you know, when is this appropriate to talk to our kids, even when their kids are adults, you know, the kids often just want to put their fingers in their ear and say, like, I don't want to talk about the fact that someday you're going to die, you know, to their 80 year old parents, right? When it's, Right. Plenty important time to start getting real about what's going to happen. But let but so for a start, maybe we should start with the younger kids um, and we can talk a little bit about why you think it's important to talk to kids about death and how you think it's important to talk to kids about death.
1: Yeah, it, I mean, it is. And the thing I think a lot of people don't appreciate is the kids are actually already thinking about death and dying. They're, especially when they're little, and I'm talking maybe preschool, um, they're out looking at the world, they're looking at the bugs, they're looking at the animals, they're looking at the trees and the flowers, and they see the whole natural process of living and dying, and they're already thinking about it. So I think in our culture we've, we've really become uncomfortable and sort of frightened of talking about death and so it's not a normal part of what families talk about usually and so children absorb this message this sort of hidden unspoken message um, that there's something scary about it and there's something wrong and they learn pretty quickly not to even ask questions um, which I think is is a real lost opportunity so maybe you could talk about some of those found
0: opportunities um, where people Parents can just naturally talk to their kids about death.
1: Yeah, so um, one of the best ones is around pets. Um, A lot of families choose to have pets, and pets obviously go through life and death cycles much faster than people do. Um, Loss of a pet is huge and a really hard crushing blow, but a fantastic opportunity to talk about grief and to talk about loss and to talk about what's the most important part underneath those things, which is the love and the caring that we have for the people in our lives Uh, so i mean that's that's the first part and if you get a pet um, you can start to fold in conversations about caring and feeding and illness and um, you can use that as the as the opening door okay so let's just pretend that i am a four-year-old i'm your (laughs) four-year-old
0: and my (laughs) beloved cat has just passed away and i am beside
1: myself what do you you want to tell me you are so sad Um, yeah you're really sad and you are going to miss this pet Um, this pet has died Uh, her body doesn't work anymore and she is dead and she's not going to be coming back why why because when our bodies are are dead what happens is that they aren't taking in nutrients anymore they aren't able to live and be alive and so At every point, everything that's born will also die. That's a beautiful part of life. You're going to die too? Um, Yes, but since you're a very accelerated four year old and you've already gotten to that idea, (laughs) the the answer is yeah, we all will. Mommy will, grandma will, you will at some point, and all things living will die. It's a beautiful part of why we're here and alive in the first place. Yeah. It's a hard conversation.
0: You've taken me right back to my, you know, my grieving four-year-old self. But um, what do a lot of parents do instead of have that conversation?
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. So with the pet conversation, you know, they see the sadness and it's overwhelming to them to see their own child's sadness. And so the first thing they try to do is cheer the child up, which is really not good. So we want our kids to be strong. And we think, unfortunately, that that means that we need to help them buck up. And really, we just need to experience that sadness and be real with it and be okay with it. And so talking to your child and naming the emotions that the child is actually experiencing, especially for little kids because they don't know those, those emotion words for themselves yet. Um, you look really sad or I bet you're feeling so sad. You're really missing your kitty. Um, words like that that help the child decipher the feelings. As the kids get older, they're not going to want you to name it for them, but you can certainly reflect it back. So, if you've got an eight or nine-year-old, wow, you look really sad. Or I see your I see your face; you look really downcast. Tell me how you're doing. So you can offer them the reflection and then give them the space to to name their own words. Um, teens tend to be a lot more reserved. Um, it's still important, and this is a delicate, really different uh, high-wire act than with the, the little kids. They still need their parents. They still need that validation and that connection, and they may look like they don't want it. Um, so death and, and adolescence is maybe its own separate, separate delicate act. Um, but opening up the space, letting kids talk. Helping them with the language if they don't yet have the vocabulary, Uh, and and the hard one I think for parents is being okay with whatever the child is experiencing. Right. So
0: maybe moving out of the context of pets um, and into the context of people. Yeah. um, I think the first. I think the often the first death that um, a family has to deal with is often of a grandparent right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's typically it. Typically it.
0: And often actually that is also a time when parents, um, realize they need to put an estate plan together because suddenly mortality stops being science fiction and they've actually experienced the death of a parent. And they start to realize that, you know, someday they're going to die too. And that they need to put things in place, uh, so that sometimes it's easier than it would, that it will be easier for their kids than it is for them right now, because maybe their parents didn't plan or conversely, their parents did a really good job planning and they recognize what a gift that was to them, right? So right. I often work with people um, in their 40s and 50s often who have either experienced the death of a, of a parent or the death of a beloved friend or both. So um, maybe we could talk a little bit about how middle-aged parents um, can actually talk to young adult children or adult yeah. children about, about estate planning, yeah. Um, that's one question I want to ask you. And then the second one I want to talk about is actually a little bit different. But when when a grandparent or, or a friend passes away, um, is it appropriate to take kids of any age to a memorial or to a funeral? So those are two different ways, I think, that families meet death, yeah. um, just in the normal course of family life. So maybe let's start about let's start with the estate planning question so for example you you and your husband maybe you're gonna make an estate plan how do you want to talk about that with your kids do you want to talk about that with your kids uh, what what would you want to think about before you talk about it with yeah. your kids
1: well so um, we've only started uh, that that whole conversation with them which is kind of funny to think about since I'm talking to you um, they're teens and so I'm gonna hit maybe teens through young adults um, if you've got parents who are in their 40s and 50s i think we're in sort of the right ballpark and i think it's important to actually schedule out the time so don't don't look for the door to open don't wait for a naturally organic time to to this. but actually make a time that everyone can sit down together and um start with uh the idea that that since we are all going to die, just like putting that one out on the table, uh, what we have a choice about is how we handle uh, the arrangements. And I know, I mean, I think this is going to be pretty familiar to you, but I actually think of the plans and the conversation as being a vehicle for talking about values. And so if you're talking to your teens or your young adults, you're letting them know what you value about your life and the things that you've created and the things that you have to share. And you're letting them know how you want to do that. Um, With our kids, we've also talked about um, custodial parents, you know, if, if anything were to happen to us, and we're hoping it's not ever going to. We've already thought that through, and we already have identified the people that we would really want you to live with, and who we know would would help you grow up to be strong, awesome people. Uh, in our absence, we started having that conversation with them when they were in elementary school, um, and so um, that opened up a lot of questions for them. And then most of the most of the time that we had for that. Uh, session that conversation was waiting to hear the kids conversation what what questions came up for them and what questions Um, did come up for them um well so as soon as we mentioned that we've picked the people they started guessing which was funny because i hadn't that hadn't occurred to me at all but they're like oh is it so and so and so and i'm like "Yeah." and they were the really great thing was um they were on the same page so that was a really nice easy part for us was like we saw that they had the same thoughts about caregiving and about parenting and uh that they'd identified the friends and family that we would trust Mm -hmm. um that was that was a pretty awesome parenting moment actually um do do you think it made them feel better knowing that they knew what the plan was they looked actually more comfortable after the conversation than they did before so Mm -hmm. yeah i mean we were talking obviously about potentially very upsetting things and the conversation wasn't upsetting at all it was just uh, straightforward. It was reassuring. They they were comfortable with it. They seemed to like knowing that we had thought that through for them. Mm-hmm.
0: So you would recommend that parents um, have a conversation, a frank conversation about guardianship, even with young kids, but certainly with teenagers and young adults, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So when we had the conversation with our kids, um, I wasn't sure initially how they'd take it, and they looked reassured afterwards. They had they had questions but it was a pretty comfortable open conversation and they looked happy to know that we would thought it through
0: yeah i mean i remember as a small kid um lying down in bed as i was drifting off to sleep and thinking oh you know if mom and dad die i'm gonna go to my uncle bob's and actually i like uncle bob he's kind of fun and it made me feel <laughs> a li- i know it made me feel a little bit i don't know I just remember having that thought as I drifted off to sleep, probably first or second grade sometime, just sort of knowing what would happen if the worst thing happened was better for me than not knowing. Right. Who knows? Well, so maybe, here's, that's, here's the, maybe that's why I became things. an estate planner. I don't know. That's an early memory I sort of hadn't surfaced just, until recently, until right now.
1: Um, okay, so- look at, look at all the kids' literature. Yep. They're all, they're all parentless right, right. So, i
0: know even charlotte's webb one of my favorite books of all time does start out with where is papa going with that axe even i mean death and, is a part of a lot of children's books
1: yeah so harry potter right on down to gashley crumb tinies right so the kids are used to reading about kids who have no parents they are already thinking about that huh right i hadn't
0: even thought of that why do you think that's such a compelling theme in children's literature
1: um because parents take care of you and so if there aren't any you have to be the adventurer on your own and you can't be that adventurer if you've got the parents there to back you up which
0: ironically what we're talking about is not making kids feel like that
1: right right and i think that's great in fiction when someone's writing every word for you but in real life you want that safety net and you want to know that your parents have really mapped things out for you so i actually this would i'd like to go
0: a little bit farther out in terms of age, because I work with a lot of clients in their 70s and 80s who have adult children who for one reason or another are not willing to discuss this issue, frankly. And I often think that's because this family has made a practice from beginningless time to not treat their children like adults and not talk honestly Mm -hmm. with each other. Because it seems to me by that time, um, parents have a right to get old and children have a right to step into the role of caretakers and there's something kind of wrong about parents uh, heading into old age and children not being willing to support them. So I guess um, if you have any thoughts about, I mean I know it's a little bit outside of your realm of research, right, because now we're talking about adults talking to older parents, Um, but Maybe if you have some advice about older parents who need to change a lifetime of habit and actually have
1: a conversation with children that there are, well, they're not children anymore, but. Well, um, but they are, they're, they're adult children and and there's something in that that I think in a lot of families never really changes. Exactly. Um, So, so 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 my advice, yeah, my advice would be, um, my advice would be to the older parent to take a little time and. And imagine, reimagine that adult child, 70-year-old, 60-year-old, when they were little. And really just enjoy for a moment putting themselves back with that tender young child who really did need protecting. right? Because that was a strength in their relationship a long time ago. And to use that memory... And all of the things that they would like to provide for that young child, including the sense of safety and security and open lovingness. And then maybe to use some of the same examples and advice that I would use for parents of a very young child about initiating the conversations. So the tipping point into being able to talk about death is to feel like it's a normal part of life. Um, and If you can get yourself to there, then you can start to actually talk about it. And I think for parents of these older adult kids, just a quick reminder that in that adult, that 70-year-old, is still the heart of that little person um, can, what's the word that I want to use, it can sort of slingshot you into a better a better space than the conversational patterns they might be in now after 70 years of of habit. Okay, Muffy, so in an, in
0: a situation where uh, a, an adult child and an older parent really haven't had the chance or given themselves a the time to have a frank conversation about planning and what it entails, um, let's just pretend that I'm 55 years old and you are my mom and you're 75 years old and <laughs> I need to find out from you whether you've got a plan in place um, because you've never really wanted to talk to me about it. And I, I am starting to feel like it's important for me um, to know some basic things about you so that I can take care of you uh, should I need to do that in the future. Okay. All right. So we're going to sit down, we're going to have a cup of tea, and I'm going to say, hey, Mom, you know what? I'm putting my estate plan together for the first time because my kids are growing up, and I sort of feel like I need to put something in place for them. And it makes me wonder... Have you got anything in place for yourself? Oh, I I don't I don't I don't know that we need to talk about that. Yeah, but you know what? I kind of think we do. Because if you get hurt or you get sick, you're going to need somebody to pay your bills and to take care of things until you get better, right? Yes, but I like to think that will all just happen. Right. And how do you think that's going to happen, mom?
1: I, I don't know. I I guess maybe this is something we should talk about. You so that you've already started this? Yeah, you know, there's some basic documents
0: that I would love to see um, you put in place so that we can do a better job of taking care of you if you need it. There's something called a power of attorney and a healthcare directive that allows you to name the people um, that you would like to. Be in a position to take care of you if you can't take care of things for yourself is that something you might be willing to to put together with me i I would want to look at that i would would you show me that yes i will show you that okay we can stop the role-playing my point is um it can be really difficult even for grown-ups and um and that's why i thought talking about the hard stuff just is such a good topic because it does it's not just little kids right no No, it's it's absolutely not. Right. And in that situation, I think what I often see is we've got that mom who is just really private, uh, maybe not so at ease with the fact that she's getting older and really uncomfortable with our roles changing. And suddenly I, as the adult daughter, putting myself or imagining myself in the position of taking care of her. right? Right.
1: Right. Right. Which is such a huge shift and a lot of a lot of parents are just not willing to let go of that piece, right, but I think
0: what I got out of reading your book and that chapter was that we can start early so that we're not going to have that conversation
1: fifty years later, and it's not going to be that hard right and that it's a gift of their to the whole relationship. I mean, when you start being open earlier on, whether it's if you happen to have preschoolers and you're getting started really early or whether your kids are more like middle school age, starting those conversations now um, just paves the way for all kinds of deepening uh, intimacy in the relationship with you as a parent. So that the fact that you can talk about that means that you can talk about other things that are you know, also hard. <laughs> Right. Other
0: hard things like other hard, things. other Yay! hard things. Well, we've been talking about talking, but now let's talk about experiences. So, again, I am sort of jumping back and forth in time, but let's talk about the death of a grandparent, often the first death other than a pet that a kid's going to experience. And often there's a memorial service um, and sometimes there's also a funeral. Um, and those are rituals. And we don't have a lot of rituals in this society around death. Those two rituals still um, continue, though. And when do you think it's appropriate for kids to attend those? Uh, at what age? And what what should a parent think about with respect to actually experiencing the rituals around death?
1: Yeah, I think I think there's so many contextual pieces. Um, it depends a lot on whether the um, the family sorry the family is. Uh, Church or synagogue or mosque, going. It depends on whether or not it's a very secular family. So I want to kind of break it down a little bit by age, um, because there are four pieces of conceptual understanding around death that children have to build across their their childhood. Um, they sound kind of straightforward to us as adults, but children don't actually comprehend them initially. So um, the four pieces are. That the idea of death is that it's final, that it's inevitable, that it is not just old people who are going to die, and finally that it's irreversible. And so those four pieces, by the time the fourth one locks into place, children have built a a full and complete and robust understanding of of what the process of death is. And here's the surprising point. They're not going to have gotten there until they're about age 10, so, if you're talking about, you know, a five-year-old, they are starting to get the idea that death is final and that it is an inevitable part of life. So, if there's a grandparent who's died and and the child is five or six or seven, um, helping them with build their robust understanding that death is final means that attending in a memorial service or even a funeral may be fully appropriate and really help them uh, build their their capacity to comprehend the meaning, the full meaning of death. Um, there, I, I actually like to think there's sort of four different rituals around death, and and one is a memorial, which is really a celebration. Um, one is a funeral, which is more of a um, a somber event. Uh, there is a burial, which would be an actual graveside experience, um, and then. In some traditions, there's also a viewing, and that would be a viewing of the deceased body, um, either in a closed casket or an open casket. And I tend to think that kids don't handle that very well, um, especially not young children. I think that can be really terrifying. Um, So you mentioned two of those four. You mentioned, um, I think, memorials and funerals. Um, And so those tend to be social gatherings. They tend to be places that people have come together um, to recognize the loss and support each other. And I think it's wonderful, actually, for kids to be part of that social network, you know, that that community response to death is that we are all saddened and we are all brought together and brought closer together, both in – in real physical support, you know, people bring meals, lots and lots of cultures, lots of food shows up when someone has died, and also emotional support. Um, And that's really the strength of of being in community, is that you're going to be held even when bad stuff happens. And so, including children in that, to some extent, uh, I think is is wildly beneficial for them. I don't know that I have exact ages at when I would include them. I think it's really dependent on the child and the family's context. I know that we took our kids to we kind of broke them in we had unfortunately we had several death experiences uh, and I do write about them more in the book but we took them uh, to a memorial service which really was a celebration of life um, when they were about six and and eight um we took them to funerals. We took them to a graveside burial. Um, and all of those things were prepped for. We kind of worked our way in. I, I also think if parents are thinking about taking children, it's crucially important to have conversations beforehand to help the child know what the events are going to be, just physically know what's going to happen at this um, new uh, new type of experience, and then for the parents to try – as much as they can, given their own grief, uh, to be available to the child's questions.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's one of the things in the book that I really, um, appreciated, uh, you know, and as a parent, it's certainly something I've tried to live by sometimes to my children's horror, which is to, um, (laughs) answer the questions they're actually asking, um, in as honest a way as I can, given the age that they are. Yeah. So, What kind of questions do you hear or anticipate or think parents should anticipate that kids might ask around death?
1: Um, A lot of why questions, you know, why did the person die? And if they're young kids, they may just be asking about their body. So here's the funny thing about kids. What they see when they interact with somebody is the person's body. That's the thing that they actually understand the most. And so the why questions probably aren't metaphysical at three and four and five, um, but they're much more to do with what went wrong inside the person's body. And those answers can be very, very simple uh, for young kids. Um, But it's important, I think, to listen for the questions and then sometimes to clarify if you're not quite sure what the child is asking about Um, because it's important, I think, to come in a little too low than it is to come in a little too high. Can you give me an example? Um, uh, the first ones that come up, come to mind come up about sex, but about death. Um, you know, so if it's if it's a say if it's a grandparent and and the child is about five and they ask why did they die, um, you could say that the person had a heart attack, and and that might do it. Like that might be all the kid wanted was a word that answered that. Or they might be, well, you know, why did they have a heart attack or why did their heart stop working? And then you can start to go into a slightly more detailed response about the physical workings of the body. If you don't know those things, it's fine not to know them. And it's fine to say you don't really you can always tell a child, I don't know the answer to that. Um. But to come in with the really high-level, detailed answer may be confusing, may be distressing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to check really what what the kid's level of question is is about. Well, let's fast forward to teenagers. How about the kind of questions they ask? They get angry. You know, they get angry that somebody was taken away from them. They get so. Past the age of ten, they they get all four of those points about death. They know it's irreversible. They know the person's not coming back, um, and and they're really trying to work out the meaning of life and their own role and place in it. And to lose a grandparent when you're a teenager, especially if it's if it's a parent a grandparent you're really close to, um, it feels unjust. It feels wrong, and it's very natural and common for teens to be really angry about it. Um, and they may not, they may not express that very openly with you. Well, I am the parent
0: of a teenager who would routinely punch holes in doors, actually, okay. when um, upset about things like that, rather than yeah. use words. Yeah. We just we just had all the doors fixed, because I think he's um, grown out of that now. Okay. Um, but what are some things that parents can say uh, in the face of the anger and the feeling of
1: injustice? Um, I think one of the most important things to say to teens is that you see it, that you see it and you you get it, uh, that it's a really normal part of, of grieving, um, that, that we feel that way because of the depth of the love that we had for the person and that it's hard to lose them um, and just Acknowledge that, sort of honor what the the kid is feeling. We haven't had holes punched in doors, so I don't know exactly how I would respond at the, in that moment. Um, well, first
0: you but, get really angry that there's a hole in the door, and then yeah, you talk about what's going on underneath it.
1: Mm-hmm. And then I would also want to talk about strategies to not hit the door the next time. Um, <laughs> okay, that's a different podcast. But yeah, um, but no, I mean I think. I mean, there's there's also obviously books about, about grief and the grieving process, and there are known to be several stages. We don't go through them sequentially, um, and we don't always go through them equivalently. So okay. somebody who's, who's going to be heavily sad might not be heavily angry, but they might feel some anger at some point. Um, you know, it's hard when the grandparent is your own parent. Um, because you also have grief and you're also processing your own loss. And to make room for your child's grief around their grandparent with whom they've had a different relationship than you have had with your own parent, um, it's tricky. And I think just being human about it, you know, touching in on it sometimes and acknowledging it, um, goes even a little goes a long way. Well, that's actually a really good opening for
0: us wrapping up this conversation and I was going to ask you to, because it gets to more universal themes of how to talk to kids generally about the hard stuff. And in the hard stuff in your book, you know, you talk about death, but also sex and also divorce. Um, In all three of those contexts, though, you do have some universal, I wouldn't say rules, but I would say guidelines um, for honestly communicating and effectively communicating with kids. And I thought this would be a good way to kind of finish this up if you would wouldn't mind summarizing those yeah so
1: i mean for me the baseline is respectfulness um i i think treating children as deserving of respect and respecting their individual experience so it's separate from you um that means listening to them it means looking for openings to raise the things that you know you need to raise with them um it means uh trying to stay open and being being as honest and and straightforward as you can um and all of that's hard work and all of that is a work in progress uh that's the other thing i don't think there's any simple like i've done it right woohoo pat on the back kind of thing um it's a kids are an ongoing moving target because they're developing and changing and so Even your relationship with your child two years ago is going to be different than your relationship with them now. And if you start from that premise of respectfulness and watching and listening to who they are, um, you have a door. And you have a door that you can always have open.
0: Well, that's great. And I I hope that people listen to this podcast because I think – you know all of us deal with death it's a universal human experience all of us have to both experience it and explain it to the people that we love and i think having um clarity and honesty around it makes all of the other stuff that we have to do around death easier so putting documents together putting together the rituals around death and planning for our own so I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. And is there anything that I
1: didn't ask you that you wished I had? Um, I could offer people a couple things of what not to say. Perfect. Around death. Okay. Um, because people are often wanting to do something and not really sure how to step into that uh, gap, they'll say things that they think are sweet or that soften The blow about about a death, and so they'll say things like she's sleeping, uh, or you know she's gone to a better place, and these are sort of meant to be comforting to the child. And I just want to encourage people to think about the fact that actually what that does is confuse the child. So if she's just sleeping, what the heck does that mean for me when I go to bed every night? Uh, If she's just gone to a better place? Uh, where is that, and why are we not visiting? <laughs> uh. Especially if it's so nice there. Um, so just uh, would really encourage people to be simple and direct uh, and and open.
0: Well, thank you. You've been all of those things on the show today, and I super appreciate you being willing to share your knowledge, and I do encourage people to um, Read your book, Wired to Listen, and I will tell people in just a second how to get a copy. So take thanks care. So,
1: thanks so much, Liza.
0: Bye. You've just listened to my conversation with Dr. Muffy Wiebe Waterman, author of Wired to Listen. To get a copy of Wired to Listen, go to Amazon.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Life, Death, Law. To find out more about today's episode, or to send me a question or a suggested topic for future podcasts, Go to lifedeathlaw.com, send me an email at lifedeathlawpodcast at gmail.com, or call me on the Life Death Law phone line at 669-232-0872. That's 669-232-0872. To subscribe to Life Death Law, go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. So take care and remember, When it comes to life and death and law, we are all in the same boat. Until next time, I'm Liza Hanks. Bye.